20 Minute Topic is back. I'm Marcus Stead and I'm joined as ever by Greg Lance Watkins. In this edition, we're going to talk about devolution in Wales. It's just over 20 years since Welsh devolution took place and the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has exposed the many flaws in devolution with widespread public confusion as to whether we should be looking to Boris Johnson or Mark Drakeford for leadership. What you might not know is that Greg was one of the senior figures in the No campaign against the setting up of the Assembly in the referendum of 1997. In this podcast, we reflect on Wales's devolution journey. Greg tells us about his role in the 1997 campaign, including some shocking revelations about things that went on at key counts in that knife-edge vote and we analyse the damage devolution has done to Wales over the last 20 years. This is going to be a fascinating discussion. To put things into a wider context, I think the best place to start is 1979. And the referendum was held on the 1st of March, St David's Day that year. And that was about creating a Welsh Assembly. And the context there was, we'd just gone through the winter of discontent. For those of you who aren't old enough or aren't familiar with it, there was widespread industrial action throughout the winter of 1978 into 1979, rubbish piling up on the streets, widespread industrial action. We'd come through that and the referendum had taken place. There was clearly not much appetite for devolution at that point. There was 59% turnout of whom just 20% voted in favour. So the Assembly was off the cards then, at that point, 1979. However, the election campaign of that period was interesting because it contextualised, if you like, what it is to be Welsh and what Welshness is all about. And the word crackach, whilst it may or may not have been used then, I'm not quite sure whether it was or not, the meaning behind it was used. Now, for those of you who don't know what crackach means, it's a reference to a middle-class, interconnected Welsh-speaking elite who dominate the Welsh arts, media, civil service, and higher education sectors. And there was a concern that there was an elite, as I say, I'm not sure whether the word crackach was used, but there was a concern that there was an elite in Wales who would use the creation of an assembly as a power grab. And there were some examples used of that. Krakaka, as I say, very middle class, Welsh speaking, very often sympathetic to Welsh nationalism, or at least willing to ride on the coattails of Welsh nationalists. Glenys Kinnock, the um, wife of Neil Kinnock, the future Labour leader, gave an example of a time of a school in Anglesey where children had to ask to go to the toilet in Welsh, um, even though they were from English speaking homes and spoke English primarily. Um, Leo Absey, the well-known Labour MP of the time, he said that this would be used as a power grab for what he called Welsh language fanatics. And Neil Kinnock himself said, um, to quote Neil Kinnock, between the mid-16th century and the mid-18th century, Wales had practically no history at all. And even before that, it was the history of rural brigands who have been ennobled by being called princes. And I'm of the view, look, I... Cards on the table, I am very proud to be Welsh. Um, I, I, I don't speak Welsh, but when I go elsewhere in the world, I like telling people about the good things I consider about Wales and why I'm proud to be Welsh. But I like to keep my Welsh identity in context and, and in and a great deal of perspective. I am Welsh and I am British. When Welsh nationalists talk about restoring Wales's independence, 
what do they actually mean? Because only once for a brief period more than a thousand years ago was Wales an independent nation, and that was between 1055 and 1063 AD under the rule of Griffith ap Llewellyn. And aside from Griffith, Griffith ap Llewellyn's eight-year reign, Wales has never been an independent nation, let alone one conquered by England, a narrative that we hear a lot from Welsh nationalists. The terrain of Wales made it very difficult to govern. North-South transport links remain very poor to this day. Internal rivalries meant that the term Wales really referred to a geographic entity rather than an independent nation. And Wales's history until the Industrial Revolution can be summed up as one of rivaling princes, each with their own territory, who would fight each other and were willing to both fight against and cooperate with English sovereigns, depending on the circumstances. Um, and on the subject of Krakak culture in, in relation to 1979, Greg, and I know you at that time were not, not only not in Wales, you were not in Britain, um, but Krakak and the influence that Krakak had in the Welsh arts, media, civil service, higher education was a big factor in that 1979 campaign. Um, the beginnings of the Krakak is a difficult thing to put your finger on. I would say a turning point came in um, the development of broadcasting in Wales, um, Saunders Lewis, and his cronies managed to gain control of the BBC Wales editorial panel from BBC Wales's inception. And Saunders Lewis, that was the, was the racist and anti-Semitic founder of Plaid Cymru, um, he, he had a terrible track record of anti-Semitism, and he also said some horrible things about child uh, refugees in World War II from England coming to Wales. But he had a great deal of influence in the early years of BBC Wales, and he planted various people in senior editorial positions. And really, you can follow a, a family trail of, of people, um, their sons, their daughters, their grandchildren, their great nephews and nieces and everything, have held the key positions in BBC Wales ever since. Um, so that's an example of Krakak culture. It developed in the 1960s and 70s, particularly around the Poncanner area of Cardiff. The development of um, S4C was a factor in the late 70s, early 80s. It launched in 1982. The opening of Glantarp School in Cardiff was highly controversial. So, Greg, I know you weren't involved in 1979, but Krakak culture, although not as developed as it would become in the years afterwards, there was a real feeling in Wales of a Welsh-speaking, Welsh nationalist elite having a huge amount of influence. And that, at that particular point, was what made a lot of people suspicious of devolution. I think I can take you back further, even back in the 60s. Bear in mind, my father was born in Tonipandi. Uh, my, his father uh, worked in the pits from the age of 10 as a pony boy. Uh, at the turn of the century before the First World War uh, and was very proud to uh, have come from Wales. Uh, my grandmother was a monoglot who only spoke Welsh until she was about 17 or 18. Uh, so I can take my uh, affinity or association with Wales back um, fair while before you were born and even then they may not have been known as the Krakow but they were known as the Tafia. There was no doubt that many things in Wales were con controlled by about 50 families who formed 
the taffia. They refined themselves when communications between people became more extensive through broadcasting and the likes of Saunders Lewis, who, although he took the taffia by the scruff of the neck and turned them into the cracker, uh, we have to admit that he really was ghastly and he set some appalling trends particularly in terms of racism within Plaid. well very much so and, and this, this is this is something this is something i want to talk about very briefly we've got a huge amount to get through and only 40 minutes to do it in so well, to this day Plaid mm. is a racist organization mm. which has been found guilty in courts of racism which is poisonously, toxically, and abusively racist. Mm. And because I do not speak Welsh, I've lived all over the world, quite literally, I am considered not to have an opinion about Wales. Which well, I there, think is, there, is a, there is a mentality among Plaid Cymru, and I've encountered this many, many times. First of all, the behaviour of their activists to this day on social media is absolutely disgusting. I was, what particularly concerned me, and this is where I really do fall out with the crack act. Take an example earlier this year, Zoe Williams, the Guardian columnist, made a, a joke about um, Wales in one of her columns in the Welsh language. And she was subjected to a, an absolutely appalling pile-on. And um, she and I have spoken about this on the phone in the period since. What concerned me is that some of the abuse she received, it wasn't just people saying, uh, vehemently saying they disagree with her. It was personally abusive and very threatening. And what concerned me is that I didn't see any people, whether it's well-known people within the Krakak or the wider Welsh nationalist community, saying, come on now, you're going too far. There's no need to be so rude and abusive about her. This is completely unacceptable. There was none of that. And you go about, about Saunders Lewis, and we could do a podcast on Saunders Lewis quite easily. Never mind how poor most of his work was. It's not widely respected among literary critics, a lot of his work. But Saunders Lewis, to this day, he is revered by the Welsh nationalist community who seem to regard his anti-Semitism and his racism as some sort of minor character flaw, like leaving your socks on the uh, bedroom floor or something like that. They don't acknowledge head on that, that this was a racist and anti-Semite, a thoroughly unpleasant character. So the Krakak, if you like, if, if you were to see them, the Krakak at play is when you see the gorset of the bards at the Eisteddfod when they dress up in their gear at this sort of pseudo-pagan fancy dress party at the Eisteddfod every year. Um, but, and again, Plaid Cymru itself was founded by Saunders Lewis during an Eisteddfod in the 1930s, I think it was, um, perhaps, perhaps the 1920s. But yes, you have given a very brief precy there of the history of the movement. But we need to move on now to the 1980s, and you, you were in this country by then, you were living in Chepstow. Um, Wales changed quite radically in the 1980s with the decline of the coal industry. The growth of Quango culture during the Thatcher and the major years, and Quango stands for quasi-autonomous non-governmental organisation. You had the Welsh office based in Cates Park in Cardiff, which was the Secretary of State for Wales, plus two junior ministers. And the Secretary of State for Wales sat among the cabinet in Westminster as well. 
and the Secretary of State had various powers in terms of health, education, uh, economic development in Wales, but you also had a quango culture of organisations like the Welsh Development Agency and many, many others um, who were dominated to a very large degree by, again, this network, this crack-ack network. And you talked about 50 families. I think it was the, uh, the, a very good journalist by the name of Paul Starling who, who originally made that observation in about the late 90s, early 2000s when he was political editor of the Welsh Daily Mirror. He said that Wales is governed by 50 families. And you could see among these quangos and among the Welsh Office Civil Service crack-ack influence. And at the, the height of not just Thatcherism, but into the major years when David Hunt and then John Redwood was Welsh Secretary. At the height of that, the Welsh Language Act of 1993 was passed, which saw Welsh language use spread enormously in public life in Wales, and yet with a Conservative government and a mixture of what you could call wet Conservatives and Thatcherites holding the, 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 the Welsh office portfolio at various points in that time, with all that going on, the crack-ack influence at civil service level and at quango level did manage to get the Welsh Language Act of 1993 passed. And I remember, because when I was at primary school at that time, and I remember I started primary school in 1988. You did not hear Welsh spoken in 1988 in our primary school. If you wanted your children taught in Welsh, there was a Welsh language primary school less than a five-minute walk away which you could send them to. It was only post-1993 and it, it took until 1994. So I was in my final year, 94, 95, before I went on to secondary school. All of a sudden, things started happening. We had a teacher would come in for one hour a week to teach us Welsh. And in real terms, that didn't mean anything else apart from uh, a few count to 10 type songs in the days, the weeks, the months, of the year, that sort of thing. Then little stickers started appearing around the classroom. Teledi above the television, Kavridiader above the computer, Bordi above the blackboard. Um, toiletty and so forth, and, and I think that's the word for toilet, forgive me if it's not, but you, you could see Welsh language influence starting to creep in in schools, and, and that has extended in the years since, and that, bearing in mind we still had a Conservative government and no devolution at that point, was a symptom of crackach influence in Wales at that time. Krakach influence has far outweighed interest on the part of the peoples who live in the region that is known as Wales. The actual facts when it comes to the language, for instance, there is a great disparity between the Wales of West Wales, the Wales of North, and the Welsh language of North Wales, the Welsh language of South Wales, and Carmarthen Welsh. Which one is actually Welsh? Well, there's a great deal of internal snobbery, particularly at the Eisteddfod, between which one is actually Welsh. And I, I gather a, a friend of mine, a well-known broadcaster who's got family in uh, North Wales, who and his family can speak Welsh, they say that they don't really understand what they hear on S4C because it bears no relation to the version of Welsh um, that they speak. And another very well-known uh, Welsh language broadcaster who I have actually spoken to for a few years, but he is rather scathing of the, of the snobby culture within it. Um, he said it's, as far as he's concerned, and he is a proud Welsh speaker, and uh, again, I've never had heard any 
wrong you know racism or anything like this from him but he says that what you get among the crack act set is they're very unwelcoming particularly the Eisteddfod set unwelcoming to outsiders if you don't speak Welsh as though you're on the Eisteddfod stage they don't want to know you so there's a lot of inter you are right there's a lot of internal rivalry and I'll say this about crack act based on my own experience of years working in the media um my first steps were taken in the Welsh media 14 years ago um, Krakak will let you in up to a certain point if you're seen to be learning Welsh, their version of Welsh that is, and you do enough bootlicking, but it does have its limits. You mustn't be seen to be threatening their dominance in any way. And if you are, they become very aggressive, very personal. And to use another Paul Starlingism, they tell vague lies about you to try and smear your name. Um, now, in terms of BBC Wales, I, I said at the beginning of this discussion about their influence there, and um, Phil Parry on his The I Wales website has written a series of articles about the close links between Plaid Cymru and BBC Wales, and I know another very good journalist, Mike Graham of Talk Radio, he experienced it for himself in the 1990s when he worked alongside Paul Starling. Um, and... What happened is, it's, it was always there at BBC Wales, as I've just demonstrated, going back to the Saunders-Lewis days. In the 1970s and 80s, they weren't quite so keen on it because the Crack Act were more interested in developing influence within S4C through independent production companies who got commissions to make stuff for S4C, line their pockets that way. I would argue that at some point from the late 1980s onwards, Crack Act influence at BBC Wales really began to intensify and it's now the dominant influence at BBC Wales. But that, again, is a separate discussion, and I am conscious of the time. Um, I'm going to move on now to 1997, and Blair had won the um, 97 election with a huge majority in uh, around May time, I think it was. We fast forward to the, and uh, getting devolution up and running was one of the priorities of the Blair government. Uh, fast forward to late August, Princess Diana was killed in a car crash. A matter of weeks later, they had a referendum in Scotland, which passed reasonably comfortably. And it was the week after that, the Thursday after that, that the referendum was held in Wales. Now, that summer, you were heavily involved in, a camp in the No campaign. I think we look at the senior figures. It was the banker, Sir Julian Hodge. It was yourself and it was uh, two people from the Labour side. Caris Pugh and Betty Bowen, both sadly no longer with us, as indeed Julian Hodge is no longer with us. Tell me, first of all, very quickly, please, your influence in that campaign, how did, it, how did you get involved in it? Mainly because I was vociferously opposed to the destruction of these United Kingdoms in the self-interest of this tiny and vaguely lunatic Krakow group who wanted to seize power in Wales and force all sorts of contrived Welshnesses on the people who were the inhabitants of Wales. When you think that the Welsh language, less than 5% of all of the people in the Welsh region have any kind of meaningful formal qualification in being able to speak Welsh. Yeah. 
But how did you, you how did you end up in that position? Because obviously you must have known Julian Hodge. I know he was close to people like Jim Callahan historically, and I can understand how Karis Pugh and Betty Bowen got involved. Why was Julian Hodge, who was bankrolling to a large extent the No campaign, why was he keen to get you on board? Why were you such? Why was he keen to make you such a pivotal figure? Um, well, with De- Devolution, I came out with the concept because my business at the time uh, was in Chepstow, which is Monmouthshire. And Monmouthshire is not a part of Wales and never has been. Uh, it has always been portrayed as England, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Monmouthshire, and the district of Berwick on Tweed. And as a way of showing just how disunited. Wales was, having never really been a nation in its entire history, merely that one brigand seized control by killing off his opposition for an eight-year period a thousand years ago, does not make a nation. It has been part of these United Kingdoms for a very long time. Yeah, so why did Julian Hodge want you involved? That's, that's well, why. he heard that I had come forward and I had said that we should have an independent Monmouthshire. If Wales was going to devolve, since Monmouthshire was still at war with Germany, uh, we should have our own passport Hmm. and we should be independent. Of course I didn't want independence for Monmouthshire. What I wanted to show was the utter stupidity of devolution of this Mickey Mouse region without an economy, without any manufacturing in engineering or industry of any major type, with coal, which was sliding into oblivion in Wales um, due to technical difficulties, as was repeatedly quoted about the coal mines in Wales. The technical difficulty was they'd run out of Oh. Well, look, I, we can't get into a big debate about the coal industry at the moment because of the constraints of time. We've got a lot to get through here. So I don't want to focus... It wasn't that. an industry on which Wales could found the concept of being an independent region, let alone an independent country. Right, now... It didn't have commerce. It didn't have industry. It didn't have any major employers. And it was lunacy to take the people down this blind alley and destroy the future for their children. Now, you had a coalition of people working with you at that time of uh, different parties. You had Rod Richards from the Conservatives, and I've mentioned Karis Pugh and Betty Bowen, who were longtime Labour people. Among the Labour MPs, there was Clow Smith, Don Tuig, and the late Alan Williams, a man I, I had a lot of respect for, actually. Um, who were all opposed for devolution and with good reason. The, what happened on that night, and I watched um, a little bit of the, uh, the results program back on YouTube the other day. The, the, the official vote was 50.22% turnout, of which 50.30% voted yes. On that night, there was, correct me if I'm wrong, but a long gap between the penultimate um, county declaring its result, and the final county. And you have alleged in the past foul play on that night. 
Can you tell us, please, in just a few minutes, if you would, what went on, where you were, and the, the discrepancy? Because it was very clear, me watching back that TV coverage, which Hugh Edwards anchored that night, as they were headed towards the end of the programme and the, the, just waiting for the last few results to come in, it seemed likely we were heading for no. What do you allege happened in that final count? Where was it, first of all, and what do you think went on? Firstly, the entire vote had been rigged in the first place, in that virtually no funding, the only serious funder of the entire no campaign was Sir Julian Hodge. And I spoke with him on several occasions, and he was funding and talking mainly with Caris Pugh and through his son, because do bear in mind, Sir Julian Hodge was in his mid to late 90s even then. He died in 2004, um, a couple of weeks before he was 100. Yeah, can we focus on the count here? Because I've got to ask you about the count. I want to know what went on in that last count. There was no, the whole point is there was no funding, but government funding was supplied to the Yes campaign. Hmm. So also was a huge tranche of money, which apparently, or should I say allegedly, uh, was not approved by the union, by Derek Gregory, who funded a great deal of add-on to gain votes for the Yes campaign. It was absolutely clear that the Yes campaign had lost. There was no doubt about this. And in fact, Tony Blair came to Cardiff to revel in the glory of having won but ended up getting on the train to go back to London when he realised they'd lost. Right, so that final... I heard cases where votes went out of windows. Many of them, for instance, in Ronthakan and Taff, it was alleged that there was no supervision of a balanced nature. Only people who were in the Yes campaign were allowed to count the votes, and there was no supervision from anyone else. During the day of the vote, while the, once the count started, the Labour Party went to the adjudicator eight times to have the rules on counting spoilt votes changed. And it was changed eight times to suit the Yes campaign. The votes at Rondhakan and Taff, allegedly a tranche of no votes, were removed and taken out through a toilet window and disposed of. I had phone calls from North Wales of similar issues and as you said yourself, it was fairly obvious that the no vote had won. There was a long delay and two boxes of votes that had been overlooked 
were brought in to, as I recall, Carmarthen for counting. These two boxes, I am told, you could hardly fit another ballot paper into, and there was hardly any no votes amongst them. It did look as if they were manufactured votes. And this I is believe... what went on that night. And this is what went on that night. And this is a sign, I think, of crack influence in all spheres of public life in Wales. We tried to have a recount, mm. but with absolutely no balance and no adjudication, it was denied. Yeah, Despite and you can you can you can guess you can guess why. The you majority can guess why, can't you? Because, because we know what we know what goes on in Wales with whoever the adjudicators were, whoever was in charge will be part of the same dinner party circuit, will have known so and so from school, will have been so and so's nephew, will have been so and so's godfather. It, it all links together. So the, the assembly came into being then in nineteen ninety-nine. We know about Ron Davis, Alan Michael, Rodri Morgan, Carwin Jones, Mark Drakeford. Turnout at assembly elections has never exceeded 46%. Um, it, that was the, the high watermark was actually in those first elections in 1999. It's, it's never gone above 46% ever since. Now, the only one of the um, people who've held the job of first minister in its various guises, who I have any professional respect for really is Rodri Morgan. And the reason, one of the reasons I like him is in, in some ways, although I'm not, an, I'm not on the same ideology of him by any stretch of the imagination, he did at least acknowledge the problem of Krakak. Now, if I can quote Rodri Morgan, when the assembly was set up, he said, as well as horizontal devolution, spreading power and responsibility more widely, we have to have vertical devolution as well. I have sometimes tried to sum up this dimension by describing our devolution settlement as a shift from Krakak to Gwerin, from government by a self-replicating elite to a new engagement with a far wider and more representative group of people, women and men, people from North and South Wales, Welsh speakers and not, black people as well as white, and so on. Now, Rodri Morgan, when he said that, accurately described Wales, the Wales I live in, which is all of those things, and he understood the nature of the problem, as indeed did one of his education ministers towards the end of his time, Leighton Andrews, who described um, higher education as the last resting place of the Krakak, as he put it. Now, what Rodri Morgan has described there, he understood that this wasn't just a case of his party being in power. He understood that for this to achieve anything at all, there had to be a fundamental change in the way civic life in Wales, if you like, was run. Now, he very obviously did not succeed in that. It may well have been a challenge too far. But when if people listen to this may think that we're a pair of crazy conspiracy theorists. We have a former first minister of Wales and his education minister on side, not to mention people, what work of people like Paul Starling, who used the word crack regularly in his Daily Mirror column. This is a very, very real thing. Rodri Morgan acknowledged the problem. Yes, no, there is a problem. Hmm. There is a problem right the way down to simple matters of justice. Hmm. If it does not suit the cracker to publish a report, 
as in the suicide of a prominent member of the assembly, it just doesn't get reported. Mm. It is kept secret. Just as many of the directorships of any consequence in Welsh organisations are placements for ne pure nepotism. Very Father, true. Sons, very, grandchildren. Yeah, yeah ve very true. And what we've seen in the years since devolution, now you and I have already acknowledged that Krakak goes back far further, but there's been an intensification of the influence of the Krakak in the years since. Um, it, what we saw in the years after devolution uh, came into being between 1999 and the further referendum of 2011, the number of civil servants trebled, even though Ron Davis said there would be no increase in the number of civil servants, it actually trebled. What I've seen as a Cardiffian who left Cardiff for a few years in the early 2000s and then came back in the mid 2000s, there is now what I would call a cowed culture in Cardiff, in that so many people, uh, particularly those with uh, university level education, are reliant on the assembly for their income, either as direct employees or as people who work for charities or third sector bodies that are dependent on the assembly and the Welsh government for their income and are therefore highly unlikely to speak out against it in any meaningful way. So we fast forward the story to 2011 and there was a referendum in 2011 of giving the assembly primary lawmaking powers in the 20 devolved areas, the 20 policy areas that are devolved. Yes, the yes side won with 63.49% of the vote, but that was on a lousy turnout of below 36%. Rachel Banner led that campaign very well. She and her mother, Diane Banner, late mother Diane Banner, ran that very well, but they were up against the entire Welsh establishment in all sorts of ways. And we were told at that point that this was a tidying up exercise and it was the end game. However, in the years since, we have seen income tax powers become devolved. We've seen the name of the institution change. A few weeks ago, it was renamed the Welsh Parliament. I don't recall the people of Wales being consulted on that. We have seen things like, for example, in no political party manifesto uh, in the last set of assembly elections, was there any proposal whatsoever for uh, road signs to be replaced so that it's Welsh first, English underneath. That happened, that came about as a result of a report written by civil servants with the influence of third sector bodies. Next thing you know, it's official government policy. So whilst it does seem as though there's, there's, there's limited competition, if you like, between Welsh Labour and Plaid Cymru in particular, the extent to which other parties, including the Welsh Conservatives, have been bought is a matter of opinion. Um, but we can see how, again, this was the civil servants uh, and changing part, what I'm getting at is changing the party that's in power in what we now call the Welsh Parliament is effect, in effect uh, rearranging the deck chairs on the di Titanic. The machinery and the bodies behind it and the complex webs behind it and those 50 families, if you like, they're the ones who seem to have the real power in Wales, it seems to me. Mark. Could I draw your attention to just how toxic living in Wales is? In 1997, I presented with the symptoms of cancer, as some of the listeners will know. In 2001, I was informed I had 
possibly amongst other things, kidney cancer. I had been under a death threat from Mabi and Glendur for my opposing the devolution vote. An official death threat that was published in the press and supplied to newspapers, naming me. I had for a time had police protection, which I personally dispensed with because I thought uh, that the concept of a death threat, I really wasn't that perturbed about it because it's the sort of concept made by cowards. But when it came to having a kidney removed, I was approached by quite influential individuals and asked if I thought it was wise to have the operation in the Royal Gwent, which was under Welsh control. And what did I rate my chances of survival? The implication being that I could well be killed on the table because I opposed devolution. Now, I think this is a very real fear amongst people in Wales. Mm. It may be an extreme fear. It may not be the truth, but that people can actually believe this gives an indication of just how toxic Welsh politics has become. I think so. And I'm, I'm very conscious of the time. We've only got a few minutes left. And what I would add to that is Jeff Jones, the former leader of Regen Council, was uh, asked during a podcast interview uh, some years ago, well, two years ago now, um, about the prospect of um, justice and, uh, and the responsibilities of the Home Secretary, if you like, being devolved to Wales. And he said, I would oppose a Welsh judicial system and the, de um, the courts and justice being devolved. Simple reason, there are too many people who know each other in Wales. And that was Jeff Jones's way of referring to crack act culture. Now, there is a no doubt that you won't get justice in Wales. Yeah, too many people know each other. And in conclusion, then, we are obviously we're recording this during the, um, the COVID-19 pandemic. And we've seen in various ways that the, the shortcomings of devolution have come to the forefront in ways in the last few months, in ways that we haven't seen over its 20 year history. I think in particular of um, the Matt Hancock's NHS volunteer scheme, where he gave um, the, the 5 p.m. press briefing one day. He said, if you want to volunteer for be an NHS volunteer, go to this website. They'll get in touch with you and we'll, you'll be working within the NHS very, very quickly. If you typed in a Welsh postcode upon going to the website he gave, um, you were told to contact your local council in Wales um, because you, know, you were told it was a devolved matter. Then Vaughan Gethig, the Welsh health minister, said, oh, contact your local council. And it was a much more muddled scheme, whereas in England, um, Matt Hancock got more than double the number of volunteers he wanted. I think he ended up with a quarter of a million volunteers for the English NHS. Uh, we've seen various examples like the supermarket uh, priority delivery list. The Welsh government was very slow off the mark on that. We've seen in the last couple of weeks, Welsh government ministers not understanding their own rules on the lockdown. 
and um, Mark Drakeford very clearly last week didn't understand that he shouldn't have been cycling through an open park to his allotment and he was also saying people were meeting up he was saying it was fine for people to meet up with uh, non-members of their household as long as they socially distance whereas in fact the civil servants then had to put out an urgent clarification no that wasn't the case the caliber of person we are seeing both as an assembly member and let's be honest about it in the civil service people who have got to where they are either because they can speak welsh or because of their crack act connections or a little bit of both we are seeing at this time where there is a national emergency of sorts the real shortcomings of devolution like never before your final comments please i think the whole situation is a joke and since it's a joke let's end with one of max voice's jokes i won't be able to tell it as well as he does i'm not a professional comedian however there was an instance of which he tells when he was on the Fleen peninsula on a very windy day and a young woman with a child in a pushchair was blown off of the quayside into the water somebody ran he ran over to the two lifeguards who were there and said there's a woman's gone in the water with a small child and they said yes we know and he said we'll save them oh we can't swim well why are you lifeguards we can speak welsh <laughs> many a true word is said in jest well we're one minute over like i care my thanks as always to Greg. That was an excellent and insightful interview, I thought. My thanks also to you for listening. Do please spread the word and join us again next time. We'll see you then.